Welcome to On the Road to No Place Left, where we're seeking to share the gospel, make disciples, and reproduce leaders and churches until there is no place left where the name of Jesus hasn't been heard. This is Feeney, working with Jeff Sundell on Season 3 of On the Road to answer the question, what does a movement leader look like? In this episode, Jeff talks with Bill Smith for some great insights on the topic of movement leaders. There's also a story from Wuhan, China that doesn't relate to COVID, but you'll have to listen to this episode to hear it. I took a few notes as I edited this podcast, so check out the show notes if you want a brief snapshot of what Bill looks for in a movement leader. You can find those in your podcast app or at ontheroad.feeney.com. That's ontheroad, all lowercase and together, dot P-H-E-A-N-E-Y dot com. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode, you can reach me at 321-209-3899. This podcast is open source, so if you'd like to re-release this interview on your own channel, please contact me. All right, let's jump in. Bill, you and I have crossed paths over the last, I don't know, 18 years or so. But the one thing I always tell people, I said, I've never heard Bill preach. I've never seen Bill. I don't even think I've actually seen you teach. We may have co-taught a couple times. But the one thing I can always say is I've always walked away changed, um, impacted in some significant way when I've been around you, Bill. And so, one, I think it'd be wonderful just to have you give us a little introduction of just, man, a little background. We're, we're looking at 18, 20, well, 20 plus years of history now of what God's been doing through movements around the world. And, you know, I feel like you've been in the epicenter of much of that. So um, we're just going to, man, I just want to hear some of your story before we jump in. Thank you for that. And I just say, praise God, if he uses me to change people, sometimes I say things I'm not even aware of the impact of. It. I mean, it's, it's the Spirit speaking through me. All right. Um, I just had a birthday a couple weeks ago. I am 76 years old, man. <laughs> been been doing this for a while. Grew up in a church. I was in church nine months before I was born. By the time I was 11, uh, parents took me to a crusade out in West Texas, and some guy preached hellfire and everything else. And I decided, man, I didn't want to go to hell. It's time for me to get saved. And, and did. Had a genuine conversion experience. By the time I was 25 and a captain in the Air Force and flying all around Southeast Asia and doing lots of exciting and fun kind of things, uh, I decided it was time to ask God what he wanted me to do. And uh, God just communicated very directly that uh, he wasn't going to tell me. Full stop. And uh, with a little more soul searching, God said, uh, I tell obedient people what I want them to do, and you're not obedient came to the decision that, yeah, I decided I was going to be obedient to God. And uh, that was a really fundamental life change about age 25. And uh, then nothing happened. Uh, A week or two later, uh, the Air Force, we were living in Japan at the time, sent Susan to Houston and sent me to Vietnam, where I spent a year, and I'd already been down there a whole lot there. And and I grew a whole lot. I thought, well, maybe God's going to say something here. Nope. Ended that tour, went back to the Pentagon, and uh, got to the point, it was serious, am I going to pursue my military career, or am I, and serve God in this way, or am I going to get out and go be a vocational Christian, and so Susan and I went to retreat, and uh, God spoke, and we knew it was time to 
resign from that career and to uh, pursue full-time ministry. Along the way, there were a large number of mentors, guys that, that spoke into my life, and I won't go into a whole lot of them, but uh, went to Louisville, Kentucky Southern Seminary and started a missions program there and all kinds of stuff. One of the seminal events was God took both Susan and I to the Lausanne Congress on Evangelism in 1974 in uh, Switzerland. And I listened to guys like Ralph Winter. I listened to guys like Tom McGavern. I watched John Stott write that Lausanne Covenant. Uh, but those were the biggies. The more impactful thing, day by day, hour by hour, in small groups, you rub shoulders with African, Indonesian, Indian, Russian, Chinese, Latin, ordinary, not ordinary believers. These were the cream of the crop of the evangelical Christians in those countries. And uh, and me being a nobody, it was easy for them to open up. And the way that conference was structured, almost every hour, there would be little small group prayer times and that sort of thing. I was genuinely blessed by, uh, let's just say, impacted by lots and lots of the key men and women around the world that God was using in the 60s and 70s. And I'm a relational guy, and so a number of those I tended to keep up with. Fast forward, uh, we were Southern Baptist, went to Southern Baptist Mission Agency, arrived in Bangkok, Thailand as brand new first day missionaries in a date that doesn't mean anything. 25th of April, 1975. Well, the day before that, Saigon fell to communists. The day after that, Nam Pen did. And so we flew into an airport in Bangkok that was littered with crash-banged-up airplanes because in those two countries next to us, anybody that could steal a plane and thought they, they could get it off the ground and try to fly and escape to uh, Bangkok, Thailand. There were literally bulldozing wrecked planes off the airstrip at uh, Don Mueang Airport uh, those two days. And then Susan and I stayed in a hotel that was mostly full of refugee missionaries from Vietnam and from Cambodia. The first thing they all said is, uh, you're crazy, Thailand's sex domino, you won't have time to learn the language before all the missionaries are chased out of here also. That wasn't very encouraging for our first day on the mission field. And in those conversations with a lot of families, especially those that had just fled Saigon, the conversation often turned to, what did you leave behind? And some family would say, all our family pictures, our kids' toys. Guys would say, uh, my whole life accumulation of uh, theology textbooks, my whole library I left behind. But there was one of those missionaries in that, that conversation when sort of the pause, somebody said, what'd you leave behind? He said, I left behind a few good men. Now, that's that's pretty powerful because... Earlier on, I had spent a lot of time in the military in Vietnam. I actually knew a lot of these Christians and these missionaries. And I know that for the Baptist work, there were 30 Baptist churches in Vietnam when the country fell to communists. And 29 of those pastors fled the United States and abandoned their congregation. One guy didn't. He was the disciple of the missionary who said, I left behind a few good men. In the plans of God, 10, 15 years later, I was running humanitarian projects all over Vietnam, family left, 
And I actually met a number of his disciples who've been through bad times, re-education through labor, had lost children, starved, all kinds of stuff. And disciples were multiplying like crazy in those house churches uh, by the 1980s, early 90s when I was there. Uh, in Thailand, uh, I was a missionary. I did all kinds of stuff. At university evangelism program, multiplied uh, disciple college students, planted house church, planted rural churches, lived in Bangkok, helped church planters all around Thailand, various places. Total of 14 years living in Thailand, learned a whole lot of things about how to plant churches in an open society, picked up a whole lot of skills that didn't have left the States, and then God called us again and said, okay, Bill, time to leave all of that, go to China. At that time, China was still really pretty shut down, and everything that I had learned in Thailand about planting churches was both illegal and irrelevant in China. Nothing that I had learned to do in an open society planting churches in Thailand was needed by a foreigner to go do it because Chinese house church people were light years ahead of us. I mean, many of these guys already live in the book of Acts. And so I had a professional job of opening up a particular unreached people group in, uh, in China that had almost no believers. And after a number of years, God graciously just multiplied believers among each one of their dialects. And one point here is when God took us from Thailand to China, I had to start all over again. And what was my role? What was my task? What did God want done? And the nice thing was I got to deeply embed with a lot of Chinese house church people who were literally living the book of Acts. In the course of things, God took me out of that hands-on role, and I became a trainer. And I thought, that's hilarious, because I've never had an education course in my life. <laughs> so for, for close to a decade, uh, Susan and I, based out of Singapore, uh, tried to replicate for others what it would take to get to a movement. Uh, we probably had a thousand foreigners come through and quite a few locals from all around the world. And so about a decade going around training folks and then uh, retired and uh, came home and took out social security, thought that was about it. And then people started asking me to go train and I uh, did that for a while. Then I retired again. And uh, before COVID typical month would be probably an overseas trip, maybe to Africa, maybe to India or, and uh, a whole lot of just keeping up with the guys and the people and that kind of stuff. That's awesome. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's probably the most I've ever heard of your story. That uh, That is, um, oh man, incredible. Well, there's little things that go through my mind in the midst of that. And to me, that's why I'm so excited to ask these next three questions, you know, is over that period of history, you know, with church planning movements, disciple making movements, you know, there, there seems to be some patterns in my mind of um, that that question of what's the minimum that's got to be there for, and there's two sides of the coin almost. There's one side of the coin of I'm selecting in, in one sense, like Christ did. Right. But as I select, I'm, I'm committing to that right. person, you know, this 60, 90 days a year for the rest of my life, whatever it is. Right. And then, but the other side, what what is there that we see? And so, 
I mean, I'd love to hear your two sides of the coin as you've just watched over history and done it yourself. A number of perspectives. One is uh, many, many guys, uh, locals and foreign missionaries, start well and don't finish well. The vast majority of the folks that went through some sort of a training program, depending on whichever agency I was with and a lot of these freelance trainings I do now, don't really get to movement. And, and I think biblically, Jesus called a lot of people to follow him. They went for the bread. They went for the excitement. They went for the miracles. I mean, at one time, there were apparently crowds of thousands. Um, but in the course of his ministry, there was a winnowing down and a winnowing down. Uh, I think Jesus said, come look, come see. And a lot of folks self-selected out, but then eventually he, he selected his 12. So, so in, in one sense, that's what I've been involved in for a, a long, long time. Um, I'm looking for several things. I'm looking for people who are genuinely and soundly saved. That is, they've had a, they've had a deep, and I'm not looking for a, a point of time, the exact minute, but they've had a deep salvation experience. They know they're saved. They know what it costs God. They know what the difference is between lost and salvation themselves. Uh, and you've mentioned before, and we've talked about people who, you know, great leaders come from hell. They don't drop down from heaven. Um, people who really, really know the cost of their own salvation to God and what the implication is for others. Because um, a, a large number of Christians that I encounter around the world, they really don't have that kind of depth of of experiential salvation that then shapes the rest of their life. Um, and so, so I'm looking for somebody, to use my phrase, who's really saved and who really knows what it took God to, to bring them to, to the kingdom. I can't teach that. I'm, I'm looking for people who have already some sense of the lostness of others and God's heart for losses. And and I start I can start with people who are doing humanitarian work. I can start with people who are doing a whole lot of the other kind of things that God wants done. This morning I came across a great two sentences from a sermon of uh, Spurgeon. If hell must be filled, let them go over our dead bodies. Yeah. Men are heading to the pit. Let them go with us hanging on their knees, imploring them to accept the salvation of Christ. But I'm looking for people who have that. And and it can be, in one sense, minuscule. It can be somebody who grieves over the lostness of his spouse or his brothers. Now, I don't have to start with somebody who grieves over the lostness of China or India. I don't have to start with somebody who grieves over the lostness of his entire people group or everybody in his clan. But I'm looking for somebody who, who genuinely grieves over the lostness of those he knows. It's my job to help him know more about this whole world of lostness. But that we, we can do that. What I'm looking for is somebody who's genuinely grieved at lostness of the people he knows. I, I can't manufacture that. I mean, that, that has to be something, a person and the Spirit of God working together. 
That's good. I really love how you call that out as a minimum. It doesn't need to be the whole country. I appreciate that that point. No, 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 no. And and Jeff and I have had a discussion about I think we ruin some guys who have a sense of the lostness of their spouse and the three kids, and we try to sh- show them a people group of eight million. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I don't think that's the way God works. I, th- I think the way God works is taking them where they are, showing something they can experience. I don't care if it's their whole village or their neighborhood or their clan or their extended relatives, and step by step by step. I'm looking for somebody that's a learner, and we've talked about Bruce, and I could I could reflect a, a large number of foreigners that I have worked with. Some of them probably would be characterized as unteachable, but that characteristic comes from people who try inappropriate ways to teach them. No, no one that I know in the world ever calls themselves unteachable. Teachers who have a limited bag of tricks of how to influence others call people unteachable. Does that make sense? Well, I'd love a clarification there. How do you distinguish then? How do I know that I'm just need to be a better teacher versus you? There are genuinely people that, I mean, aren't willing to learn or try something. How do you distinguish that? Well, I'm looking for people who are continually learning and I could call 10, 50 names of people on the list that I gave to Jeff. But for a variety of reasons, some are just so hard-headed that they will not sit down and let somebody else teach them, at least mm-hmm. till God's done a whole lot of stuff in their heart first. Uh, some are primarily experiential learners. Some learn in other ways. Hey, Bill, let me, let me ask you a question. We, we've been wrestling through this question, um, and I don't have the right word. I mean, you're, you're hitting on what, I, what, what to me is the key piece there's one sense I describe it as humility, but at, at the other side of this thing, the disciples were ambitious. I mean, they didn't necessarily have the right motive, and there was a lot of failing forward with the disciples, you know, and, and I would say Paul and some of his cohort were pretty ambitious too, that there is some type of intrinsic humility, but there is an ambition because these guys do eventually, no place left starts exactly like you said in their hearts of, man, my family needs to hear this. My people need to hear this. But it grows into this ambition of, man, I'm going to take it to the next village or the next district or whatever. But mm-hmm. I don't know if you have any insights on that. We've, we've been wrestling with this piece. I am looking for guys that are doers who want to accomplish something in their life, who want to achieve something. Uh, and there's two or three perspectives of that. Uh, I'm often looking for those who have suffered to get something. Uh, it could be it could be suffering as simple as rejection by their family, rejection by spouse, but who have been tested to some extent and are passing the test. Uh, they're going to do what it takes, and they have suffered, and they've already paid a bit of a price. So that that that's one perspective. I think absolutely. Paul was ambitious. Now, his ambitious eventually was the whole Roman Empire. I'm looking for guys, people who are willing to do, put in the effort to accomplish something, and accomplish something in our context is multiply the kingdom of God, multiply disciples. There's a large number of Christians around the world who just aren't doing much. If a guy has run a really top-notch garage 
or he has been a great manager of McDonald's. As we've been, you clearly see it in Christ. Yes. You clearly see it probably with Peter after the ascension, you know, and you see it, you know, you see with Paul, he says, hey, I'm Pharisee, Pharisee, Sadducee, Sadducee. But then later on, he said, I'm chief right. of sinners, right. you know. And so there seems to be, there's, you know, I don't, you know, it's that John 14 moment right. of you will do greater things than I myself, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah. And yeah. so, but yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a bit of a, it's an elusive thing, you know, mm-hmm. I guess. I don't know if elusive is the right word, mm-hmm. but um, it's hard to describe, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah. But yeah. I think it starts with teachability. It is. And teach for me, myself, because you asked the question about selection, um, I want to be able to connect with somebody. Mm. And, and I'm not sure how to put that in words. Um, you and I have connected. There are a large number of people that connected with. I mean, it's, and it's a spiritual thing. It's a chemistry thing. Um, so, some of the foreigners that have come to me for training, I could not connect with. I mean, just it just didn't happen. But through the relationships and passing them off to others and some other kind of stuff, they hit home runs. Some of these were people that you know that I think I connected with at a deep level. Praise God. There were others that for whatever reason, the chemistry, the connection, the spiritual thing wasn't there. But still God used our association to bring them to others who could take them as far as God could want to go. Does that make sense? And, and, and recognizing at this stage of my life, God may want me to impact somebody for an hour or for three or four days in tents when they're the single focus of my life or others uh, like with Bruce walk with intensely during that period that he was in Cambodia and then had very little connection with him when God was using him all over South Asia. But to recognize what God expected of me for that man or for a whole lot of others was an intense period. And then God was going to use others and others and others to take them where they need to be. Now, now I, I have friendships that go back 15, 20 years. But that's different than what we are talking about of God using me to take somebody to the next step. Hey, I'm, I'm going to take us a little off skew here for a second just to jump on this. Um, you know, I think we would see Paul doing exactly what you're talking about of, you know, if you ever just map all of the leaders across the Mediterranean, I mean, they're all over the place, different times, different places, different seasons, seem to have different contributions to the work. Just love to hear your thoughts, as, especially when we're talking about the minimum and selection. And then you go up to this maximum, this leader who's growing, who becomes the Barnabas, becomes the Paul, becomes the Aquila Priscilla. Mm-hmm. What, what have you recognized about, so it's like a sharing of leadership, a sharing of um, investment. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know the right word, but I, I call it swarming, but it's, it's, right, right, right. I, I get, it's where I'm getting my time with brothers and sisters, but I only can put so many people in a hand yes. and really give them significant time. And if I, but I know this brother needs more time. I can, I can share this person with another developing leader. So man, I just love hearing your thoughts on that. Cause I know you've, oh, I've watched you and seen you do that over the years. So Okay, two, two or three things. 
if I'm face to face with a person, they're now Zoom or Skype or, or whatever. I really pray that I am all in for that person for that 10 minute conversation between sessions at some conference we happen to be at. There's an intentionality of being all in and trying to have God show me what does that person need for their next step. Uh, I was in Badambang, Cambodia last fall, but and I did some platform stuff, but that's pretty much irrelevant. The highlight was I think I had 40 one-to-one conversations that were typically about an hour because I went there to do that being all in for somebody that I've not seen before and trying to understand their ministry situation and trying to help them understand where they needed to go next, recognizing that most of those people, that would be our only contact in this lifetime. Now, the upshot of that was picked up a few new people. That was last fall that had intense relationships with that ran multi-month. And there may be a few that are going to end up being one-year, two-year relationships. I depend on God to bring other peers and others into their life for that next step. Using that one as an example, you get the thank you notes and all that kind of stuff. But then you're looking for obedience, looking for follow-through, look, not looking for thank you notes, but guys who say, okay, I've done that, what next? And that becomes part of the selection process. And, and you and I, years and years ago, <clears throat> used to talk about um, train in order to filter. So using that principle of understanding somebody, understanding what the next step may be for them, helping them to see it clearly, seeing if they've done it, so then we can move them forward and moving forward. So that's very much integral to what I'm, what I'm doing. Coming back to that selection, okay, I'm looking for folks who took God seriously enough, what I hope God said through me, to get out and go do it, or at least to make, make the attempt. And then, then I can invest in further. Yeah, no, that, that's great. Um, you know, it sort of jumps another thought in my head. You know, Steve Smith said something. He was challenging me personally one day. He said, Jeff, I got a concern about no place left. He said, no place left could become a large group of methodological giants, but yet spiritual pygmies. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what's pushed me to this sort of this little, I'm doing my, my uh, improv PhD on leadership here. And, you know, cause the, the question is the generation before, I mean, that we look at India, we look at granny brandy, um, they were the spiritual giants who maybe not have had all the methodologies, but I think on the minimum, we'll see men gravitate, learn maybe some tools, learn some methods, you say. But when it comes to developing a leader, it, it's a whole lot different than a method. It's, right, it's right, about right. life on life. It's relationship, yes, routine, yes, strategy. Yes. So mm-hmm. I'd love to hear, what, do you, what are some of the things you've seen? So let me go back in the 60s and the 70s the cutting edge of kingdom growth uh, was called church growth. Uh, They were heavy on methodology and they did emphasize spirituality Um, around the world. I've had a chance to interact at some level with a lot of those people that were impacted by the church growth movement. And it was heavy on methodology, 
and the methodology worked, that the goal typically was to build the biggest church in your country and the world and that kind of stuff. So now let me start ticking off some of those guys that I've interacted with. First one, uh, the pastor of the biggest church in the world, Cho Young-hee. Way before he was famous, I think his church was only, I don't know, 40, 50,000, something like that. Uh, anyway, he came to Thailand. I was missionary in Thailand. The AOG sponsored him. We had a little afternoon get-together and had an individual conversation with him. And he said a few things that were deeply impactful. Um, one thing he said, uh, <laughs> he was glad he was not a Baptist. And I said, why? <laughs> he said, uh, you Baptists, after you have your preaching and your worship service, then you always have an invitation to accept and become a Christian at the end of your worship service. He says, I don't believe in that. He said, when I get my people together at my church, Sunday, we worship God. And I don't take away time from worshiping God to give an invitation to non-Christians to accept the gospel. So he had me hooked. He's the pastor of the biggest church in the world. And he doesn't believe in giving an invitation after Sunday service. Uh, he had me hooked. I said, why? He said, well, the reason is I train all of my members to witness to their neighbors and to witness to their family. Mm. I train all of my members to constantly be looking for who is suffering to go minister to their neighbors and their friends. And then I teach them to bring them to faith and to bring them into these little cell groups and to disciple them. So by the time they come to my service, they're saved, they are discipled, and they're ready to worship God. This was a genuinely humble man who, in a conversation with me that were probably only 30 seconds into it, he had decided what he was going to tell me that he thought would be impactful. Okay, this is a genuine man of God. I know the story of how his church started. I know the American AOG missionary, an old guy who lived with him, mentored him, coached him. When he first started that church out on Yoido Island with a bunch of uh, North Korean refugees. But I know the rest of the story. You know, uh, Joe Young-hee was arrested, convicted for embezzlement, uh, convicted just because of the honors kind of society in uh, South Korea. Uh, he's under house arrest now. Other Korean stories. Uh, way back, Chikoi uh, used to work with big Korean pastors. It is amazing how many of those guys have gone to jail. I say that started well, did not finish well. As a younger minister, Cho Young-hee had a couple older people speaking into his life, mentoring accountable or things that by later in his ministry, he didn't have that. And so at a personal level, uh, his life crashed. I know an awful lot of guys who started well, who were godly people that God was using to change the kingdom. Uh, some of them outgrew their mentors. Uh, some of them just through the normal attrition of lifestyle and going to the grave. I mean, their mentors passed away. And they didn't reach out and find another one. Or maybe people tried to be their mentor and their ego had gotten too big. Their success had gotten too great that uh, they, they couldn't have another person speaking into their life. So now I'm going to tie that back with methodology, cell church, whatever. You could, grow, you could grow to have the biggest church in your country. 
But if there's not something continually here, which I think is what Steve Smith was pointing at, I mean, it, 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 it's nothing. It's nothing. So, so I am viscerally committed to we got to have spiritual growth concomitant with to catch up with what our methodology and our strategy and our tools are, are getting us to. But I think the question we always have to ask as a leader, what's going to take me out? I mean, character integrity can take me out. Mm-hmm. Um, not having my foot planted in journey one. Man, the greatest sanctifier for my life is sharing the gospel. It's not that I'm all that effective at it or I'm all that good at it, but it leads to my sanctification, you know, is that sharing the gospel. You know, another one you shared is, man, we become the, the circuit tour, you know, speakers. And I guess where I'm going with the question is, what, what is it? Well, there's a word that you've said that's always stuck with, with me. I was sharing it the other night, a holy discontent with the status quo. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's been one of the pieces that continues to drive me. Yeah, just that, that holy discontent that this is, we're, we're moving to the promises of God. We're not moving towards fulfillment of an organizational vision. We're moving to literally a fulfillment of the promises of God. Are we holy discontent? Is there a holy discontent where we are right now? that's not moving towards the promises. So, I mean, the world as it is right now, it ain't right. There are millions and millions and millions of people that are going to a Christless eternity, and that ain't right. It's just not right. And then within my mind, and this is just sort of a hierarchy, I mean, I live in a suburb of Washington, D.C., and I got some neighbors <laughs> that are a long, long ways from God. But they've heard, and they, they've had a chance. And, and people have loved them, and people have tried to, 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 to point them toward Jesus. But then there are these others out there, places that you and I traipse, places that are on our, our spreadsheets and everything else. They're on our UUTV maps. And uh, uh, it ain't right that 2,000 years ago Jesus died for them, and they still don't even know it yet. And so at a, at a visceral level, uh, I'm dissatisfied with the status quo. I mean, we've all, we've all heard the stories, and you and I have experienced the stories of being someplace way out in the middle of nowhere, and somebody hears the gospel, and they really, really hear the gospel. And then they say, well, why did it take 2,000 years to get here? That ain't right. And gone through that experience enough times, and I know you have, Jeff, and the other guys, okay, that's a driver in our life. Because that's what I'm hearing of the difference, and I don't want to point fingers at anybody, but what kind of some of those stories you shared earlier is we, I don't want to say they never had a holy discontent, but where does that, I don't know if you could comment on where that gets lost. Like, how do we go from, I mean, you know, that story you shared, I mean, he had, he knew his people needed to share the gospel. I mean, he sounded like a, a movement leader, but where does that get lost? The most obedient some people are to Christ is the first day they believe. Mm-hmm. And from then, the rest of their life is sort of a downhill slope away from, from this, this instant obedience. So a story from, from Chinese house churches, there's a house church network. It's not particularly outstanding, but it's a house church network in China. Uh, right now where I am, it's a couple minutes until noon. If Jeff led me to the Lord right now and it was solid and I really came to faith right now and we prayed the prayer and all of that, 
what Jeff would say is, Bill, who do you know that you're going to tell this story to before you go to bed tonight? And he wouldn't let me do it. I mean, he, Jeff would hang with me until I told him somebody. It might be my wife, Susan. It might be some person around the world that I would talk to by WhatsApp or Zoom. And Jeff would talk me through it. So he knew I had a fair chance of at least getting my testimony out, if not three circles or something. And then Jeff would say, okay, Bill, tomorrow morning I'm going to text you and ask you how the conversation went. That's part of the salvation experience in, in some of these house church networks. Because that's part of the salvation experience for them, their salvation is integrally related to telling the story to somebody else. And, and for the vast majority of Christians who come to faith, their salvation is not related intrinsically to telling others. There's a, there's a disconnect. You've seen the suffering across these movements. What role did suffering play in the development and the longevity of these leaders? Um, and, and I'm using suffering instead of persecution because most of the time it's persecution. Right, but right. what's interesting about COVID now is COVID is shifting us to a, a universal suffering, or at least we got to start wrestling with something yeah. the rest of the church has wrestled with. How's that played out with many of these movement leaders? God uses suffering before we're believers or after we're believers to start shaping who we are. And I've heard many testimonies of, of suffering prior to coming to believe that God was shaping people, shaping us, because he knew what he could do through us. Okay. Steve Smith used to do a thing with uh, his guys in Southwest China in their baptismal discussion. You know, they would ask all these questions, you know. Are you willing to follow Christ if they burn your house? Are you willing to follow Christ if they steal your kids? Are you willing to follow Christ? If the answer is yes, 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 okay, then we'll baptize you. I think in the New Testament, most people had a general understanding. If you decide to follow Jesus Christ or follow the way, uh, there's going to be suffering. I've really been spending a lot of time in the Thessalonian books you know, the last two or three years. And here Paul shows up a week, 10 days max, after he got beat to a pulp, and he is preaching the gospel, but he is living proof of this is what happens to people who say yes to Jesus. He was visibly still wounded there, and he said some of the same things in Philippi. I mean, so I mean, he was living proof, follow Jesus, and you can be treated just like I am. Uh, so that, that was part of the, the gospel presentation, and that was a winnowing out, but it was also a this is what it may cost me to follow God. One of the interesting, you know, Paul says in Ephesians, um, you know, that as, as we suffer, we suffer, we identify with Christ, basically. Right, right. But the more I suffer, I actually increase my ability to minister. And it's almost the, it's the opposite of that is if I don't suffer, what good mm-hmm. am I in the kingdom? Mm-hmm. And, the, the flip side of that, which a lot of movement leaders suffer a lot, is you identify with more people coming out of COVID. Um, right. We've got a new day coming. You know, I, I've really been wrestling with this word season, you know, because Christ said recognize the season. You know, right now I can go out in North Carolina, recognize the season very clearly between spring and summer. But it's almost like in Christendom 
or the kingdom of God and or in our globe. There's a new season coming. I just, man, I'd love to have you challenge No Place Left and others. Yeah, what's the season? What What are you hearing mm-hmm. okay. something from God? All of these things that God does involve a pruning and a stripping away of what gets between God's people and God. And believe me, brother, for the last two months, there has been a massive pruning and a stripping away. I mean, that, that that's always what God does, okay? What God does also is bring about a new conviction of sin, and I'm not yet seeing that pop up, the collective sense of sin and need for repentance. That typically is part of when God does something new. Now, the reality is often that happens in obscure places among unknown people who are not prominent leaders, who don't have a blog, don't own Zoom. I mean, that God raises up from obscurity people that we would never have chosen to go into a deep repentance and are sold out and become useful to God. So my, my faith is all around the world right now, unknown to us, there are people that are having that kind of experience that are going to be the leaders for the next two or three decades. It's about time that we have a new, fresh wave of new people. And part of our role is to be sensitive to find them and then not put Saul's armor on a new generation of Davids. I'm self-aware enough to know that I've done a lot of training and teaching and I have tools and tricks, but none of those may be what is needed and required for this new generation that God is raising up. If one of the things God wants his people to do is be freed up from distractions so that God can have them all to himself, look at the whole globe the last two months. Uh, Many, many years ago, Susan and I were in the hub center of the world, Wuhan, China, where COVID-19 started. We were in that city, and we had uh, a glorious several hours with one of these these house church leaders, not anybody you know, but I mean, it's moving, I don't know, two or three million people. I mean, it's pretty, pretty significant movement. And he said, every once in a while, God wants me to himself. So he puts me in jail. And none of my disciples, none of my junior pastors, nobody has access to me except God. Mm. For as long as it takes, God has me all to himself. Uh, And he said, oh, and by the way, always when I got out of prison, I found God had raised up a whole new generation of leaders that I would never have empowered. So one of my hopes is God shut down every Christian activity practically on the face of this planet. And there are people who have binged on Netflix, but there are people who have binged on God. I know of a movement that has had about 40 of their key people die of COVID so far. And 
collectively in that movement, they've had over a thousand people die. But leaders, they've had 40 people die. And it's in one of these nations where everything is shut down, no transportation, that kind of stuff, which means there's lots of malnutrition. Verified, they've already had people starve to death. I know of a donor who volunteered to provide some assistance to them. And the leader said, I know of another movement that is worse off than us. Why don't you help them? This is one of those hinge points. Nothing like this has happened in this century in living memory generation. And as Lipak said, God stopped the world. And folks who call themselves believers had a chance to get close to him or binge on Netflix.